Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Transforming Trauma, a space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to learn about creative ways to find support, resources, and to share their stories. Transforming Trauma is about love, healing, community, and also about joy and possibility. Most importantly, it's about transforming your pain into power one day at a time. I'm Eve, a survivor and coach working with Rachel Grant Beyond Surviving Program. I support survivors feeling stuck in their lives, and I'm very excited to introduce Francesca Maxime here with me as a guest. We'll be chatting about the incredible practices and healing resources she's discovered over her decades of healing. Francesca is a Haitian, Dominican, Italian-American certified meditation teacher in Brooklyn and a mindfulness student of Insight Meditation Society, co-founder Jack Hornfield, and IMCW founder Tara Brock. Through her creating space for well-being and mindful Brooklyn offerings, Francesca is also a well-being consultant and life coach, social entrepreneur, and practitioner in training with the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. She has sat in retreat cumulatively for several months and teaches meditation and mindfulness. She integrates mindfulness and relational practices, psychology and attachment theory, modern neuroscience, positive neuroplasticity and somatic bottom-up approaches in her private and group teachings and trainings with clients and students to heal old wounds and recover resilience after traumatic events. She brings a broader communal lens emphasizing issues pertaining to gender and racial equity and equality. Francesca is also a poet, author, and TV news personality, having appeared on air as a news anchor and correspondent for local, national, network, and international television stations including PBS NewsHour, Bloomberg, NBC, and Fox, having interviewed countless celebrities and politicians alike while reporting live on scene from some of the most groundbreaking stories in the last two decades. Francesca is currently the host of Wise Girl Video Podcast, 
where she interviews neuroscience, trauma specialists, psychotherapists, Buddhist and major mindfulness meditation teachers. Check out her recent interviews with Dr. Siegel, Dr. Epstein, Lama Radoan, and Sharon Salzberg, who I want to give a special shout out because I met Francesca at a retreat recently, sitting with Sharon Salzberg and have her book right here. Um, so in her free time, Francesca loves the beach, playing tennis, her two cats, and baking yummy things. I couldn't be happier to be talking with you, Francesca. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jocelyn. Thanks so much for having me and for doing this. I really appreciate your commitment to uh, doing this healing work. Thank you. You as well. And there's so much that you're doing in the world that I'm excited to delve into and just to learn more about for myself. And I think that you're, you're doing the work that I'm excited to study more of. And I know there's something you've mentioned to me in the past about talk therapy being quite limited and having just graduated with a a training and, and talk therapy, essentially, I'm very aware of the gaps in a lot of professional trainings and just super excited to learn more about all the stuff you've been doing. So how about to start, can you tell me a bit about some peaks in your healing journey and what's been most helpful to you? Um, the peaks in my healing journey and what's been most helpful, I think just learning to let go. Um, I think that the main thing that I had um, had a big block with for a long time was um, why weren't things better than they were? or Why weren't things the way that I wanted them to be, especially as it pertained to my relationship with my father and especially it pertained to even my relationship with my mom or my family or my childhood. And I wanted things to be different than what they were. And of course, we can't change the past, but we can certainly change the present and the way that our limbic uh, system works and our emotional memory as opposed to our explicit memory works. Uh, research continues to show that these other kinds of memory reconsolidation processes help, uh, which well, you know, I'll get into more later, but um, one of the main things I wanted uh, in the past was to have a different dad. And long after he had died, long after, you know, I had already, uh, that relationship had already expired, I was holding on to this idea that I wish that he would been different or that my mom had made different choices and all that. And so really kind of coming to grips with it when my talk therapist at the time um, actually really just said to me, listen, you're never going to have what these other girls who have quote unquote normal childhoods have. You're never going to have that. You will always be in a place where you will not be in the equivalent space. However, there are other things you can do. There are other ways that you can heal. There are other ways that you can move beyond this. And, you know, perhaps that's another portal to a different kind of um, awakening or healing. And I think that you know, I remember at the time during that session, it was like, oh, this is a bitter pill to swallow. It's a tough pill to swallow. And I remember not wanting to swallow it, but it really was sort of the beginning of just sort of letting go of that. And then all the other things that went along with that, that, you know, pertain to current day relationships with men and, and different kinds of relationships with people and different expectations in my life and attachments to outcome and stuff. And, and then how that started to chip away at letting go of certain patterns of behavior that were just not helpful and not skillful and opened up a door to um, a different kind of healing. So uh, I won't say everything about talk therapy is bad because it's not by any means. I think a combination of everything is good. And that was certainly something that eventually over time, especially when you're working with a therapist who's caring and compassionate and who's resonant with you and who has an embodied presence um, as well as skills and, you know, knowledge and information. Um, a therapist who can walk the walk and not just talk the talk. I think those all 
are very impactful in terms of healing, regardless of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate your your saying that. And of course, letting go is is easier said than done. And um, but I appreciate the way that you explained how like acceptance and coming to terms with sort of what what cards you were dealt, or maybe that's not the right phrase, but just uh, it's so easy to get stuck in I, what I would call like the grief, the grief of loss of certain relationships and a life or a childhood or whatever it is that an innocence, like there's so much that is lost when it comes to trauma. So being able to grieve that and let go of kind of the father, like you said, that you always wanted um, is really transformative. Just as And it is a process of grief and letting go. It's not a, you know, cut and dry scenario, but it gets easier and easier. At least it did for me in my experience. And I do think that that needs to be emphasized in so far as that any time that we're resisting the whole letting go thing, because we're wishing for a different outcome, we're not giving ourselves the opportunity to grieve and mourn. And that in and of itself perpetuates suffering. And that in and of itself is a lot of the reason why I was continuing to not be happy with my life. And so really letting go means for me the idea of going into the grief in the morning, all the betrayals, accepting them, not giving them a pass, but understanding them with a certain kind of a, um, a reasoning that more pertains to the fact that, listen, everything comes up into experience for a certain set of reasons, right? Like my mom chose my dad for a certain set of reasons that you know, have to do with conditioning and programming and all kinds of stuff. And I've chosen certain things in my life based on my own conditioning. And now that I'm beginning to sort of see that, I can really just sort of send love there as opposed to just um, anger and frustration. And once I mourn and grieve some of those losses, then I can kind of let go and move on. But unless they're processed, they're just going to be tamped down and thrown under the rug or stuck in the attic or the closet. And they'll continue to chip away like termites in the basement and eventually kind of bring down the house. And nobody wants that, you know? No, definitely not. I love that. Send, send love there. I, I often tell people, maybe I'm blanking on the Buddhist term, but is it the second arrow? Like when you're, you're hurting and instead of sending love to that hurt place, we judge ourselves and make the pain even worse. So I think it, it's like a lifetime skill to keep practicing around sending love to those hurt places. And in doing so, I can hear in your own telling of your experience that compassion is such a huge part of, of healing from trauma. And compassion for my father and compassion for my mother, compassion for my own personal circumstances, many of which were great and many of which were, you know, challenging or problematic. And so understanding again, back to causes and conditions and mindfulness and sort of Buddhist philosophy or, or teachings, the idea that, you know, everything's sort of causal and interrelated. There's a reason why my father developed that way of being in the world. And there's a reason why my mom did too. And so the love that you're sending and the love and the compassion that you're cultivating there is certainly for them as well as for oneself. And it's all based on, like you say, this second arrow in terms of adding, the, adding to the, you know, there's pain, right? Meaning what happened to you. And then there's suffering, meaning how you deal with what happens to you. And so usually the suffering is called caused by the resistance to the actuality, meaning the unacceptance of the reality of your experience. So the minute that you can begin to open to your experience with friendliness, kindness, and non-judgmental uh, attitudes, which is mindfulness. Mindfulness is moment to moment, you know, present moment acceptance of the 
experience that you're actually having without grasping toward it, pushing it away or zoning out about it, that will help sort of move the needle on that. And I would just say, you know, also in terms, since you brought it up with the Buddhist piece, is the Buddha never said that life is suffering. He said there is pain, you know, old age suffering and death and, you know, a variety of other factors, but um, old age sickness and death, excuse me. But he, he said exist conditioned experience is suffering, right? So there's something beyond conditioned experience. And that's why we practice mindfulness and these other practices that people do is to get beyond conditioned experience so you can start chipping away the biases of the mind and you know these behaviors that we think are our personalities and stuff that really are just programming i think more than anything and get to what people will call this clear light or this luminous being or whatever it is that's really our buddha nature that everybody has no matter who you are but it's usually deep 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 down under the layers of shale in our, you know, you could call it our psyche, our consciousness, or whatever it is, and that if we can bring awareness to it, we can begin to chip away at, um, you know, sort of the workarounds that we've adapted, uh, you know, to survive in our life that we don't need anymore and that we can let go of. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful to me, and I actually was lucky, to not, uh, lucky enough to be trained in meditation when I was in college, but it wasn't quite the right type of training that I think I resonated with. And, you know, meditation has been a, a big part of your life. I'm curious what you can share about your practice. And I know a lot of survivors too I've met over the years feel like it's just inaccessible, that sometimes it doesn't feel safe. And also just even now there's so many teachers out there, so many types of meditation training. So wondering if you can kind of briefly say where, to, where folks might begin if they're listening to this and excited by what you're saying. Well, for me, I think one of the fundamental ways that I view it, and I don't know if this is universally true or if it's just in my experience, is that meditation is really a practice of intimacy with oneself that then opens you to an intimacy with the world. So you're opening to the subtlety of things as opposed to just being used to being reactive and you know, only seeing the gross sort of external realities. So it's like you're fine tuning the radio dial when you're sort of, you know, chick, 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 you know, trying to get in that station that might be in some far off place that you really love. Those are the ways in which we're sort of tuning into our experience internally or interoceptively, as we would call it, in terms of our viscera and our organs and our muscles and our, you know, kinesthetic sense of things. And externally, when we look at the world and we're checking out sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, all those kinds of things. So... A lot of times trauma survivors, in my case, for example, I was running for the hills when I was trying to meditate for the first time. You know, it was as if I, because what comes up or what come up, came up for me, and I think is also true for a lot of people, can be a variety of things. It could be energy that you're like, blah, and you're hyper aroused and you can't sit still, or your mind is racing and you think that you're supposed to stop your thoughts and you don't know how, which actually isn't meditation. Meditation is just witnessing your thoughts with that mindful, non-judgmental, friendly, kind attention as they come and go, and then returning your attention back to the object of your concentration, which most often in basic meditation practices, at least in the Theravadan or insight tradition, can be your breath or body sensation, but it could be anything. A lot of people do mantra meditation, like the meta meditation re retreat we were on. You can just say, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live with ease? And that could be your practice for a year. You know, it could be very simple. Um, so I think that in trauma, when I first sat down, it was 
I, what kept coming up was I'm not worthy. Why do I feel like I'm not worthy? Why do I feel like something's wrong with me? So there's all this shame that gets coupled into what are otherwise, um, just ending up to be stories about how we're interpreting our experience, the valence of morality or ethics or behavior or the ways in which we've, you know, somehow based on our external actions, perhaps been part and parcel to some of the not great things that have continued to happen into our adult life, but we really didn't have an awareness as to what our programming might have been that would cause us to engage in those things. In my case, I was drinking too much, or I was out with the wrong kinds of people, or I was eating too much. And you know, very typical um, compulsive kind of addictive kind of behaviors that when I sat down, I just kept on saying, wow, I feel like I'm not worthy. I feel like I'm not, you know, what's wrong with me? I, I can't believe the good things about myself that other people are telling me. And I thought that the thoughts in my head were like the only reality. I didn't think, I couldn't, I couldn't see myself the way other people sees me, saw, saw me, or perhaps did see me. And, you know, people who use a more religious bent, I don't really think of Buddhism as a religion, I think of it as a way of life or a set of teachings. People who have more of a, a, a traditional religious bent, like, you know, I was raised in Catholicism, some people have different things. They might say, you know, you see yourself as God sees you. You see yourself reflected in the eyes of, you know, the universal energy or, you know, the, the big, you know, Avilok. Kiteshvara, um, or the Buddha, you know, arms of compassion or whatnot, that you're not, um, that you're not just this isolated being. And so in my recommendation to trauma survivors, I would have a few. One is, you know, take it slow, take it short, take it in small bites, and don't expect that you're not going to feel odd. Don't expect anything. It might feel good, it might feel bad, but this whole idea of going there to bliss out and think that you're going to have some kind of um, escape from reality isn't, I don't think, necessarily accurate. What you're doing is you're, you're starting from a place of there's nothing wrong with me, but I've been heavily conditioned. So I've adopted a set of beliefs and behaviors and all this other kind of stuff that's sort of swirling around that I think is all of me. And so all we're doing is we're exploring this, witnessing it and watching it from this place of who am I really anchored, compassionate, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it filled with this inner nobility and basic goodness. And the knowing faculty is what we're touching into, this knowing, this deeper consciousness, this basic, you know, Buddha nature, this love, this compassion. And then we're witnessing our experience from these places, touching into it, and then we're just sort of resting in this um, basic goodness. But when you think that you're a mess and that you're not worthy, it's very difficult to cultivate that. But you can sort of ground yourself, I think, at least I did, with that shift in perspective knowing that in fact this is like really not all of who you are and um and that this is actually something that can anchor you and work with a certified mindfulness meditation teacher who's trained in trauma somebody who for example me or other people who really um know what it's like to titrate the experience and to pendulate the experience so that you're not too hyper-aroused or hyper-aroused. You don't check out and disassociate and you don't get overly stimulated so that energetically you're sort of bouncing off the walls and that you're in this, as Dean, Dan Siegel calls, this uh, window of tolerance where your homeostatic state is um, restful. And so chunk it out. Do one minute, three minute, five minute meditations. Don't do you know, two week long retreats where you don't have guidance with, you know, the right kind of people. And I would recommend David Trelevin's book, Trauma-Centered Mindfulness, or something like that. It's called 
Um, he did that with Willoughby Britain as a supporting researcher, I think. And um, all these other kind of trauma uh, methods like sensory motor psychotherapy or somatic experiencing, Hakomi, a variety of different things, EMDR, IFS therapy, that kind of stuff that can all kind of help support a mindfulness practice. And many of them use mindfulness practices integrated into their uh, therapeutic approaches that are bottom up, you know, in addition to being top down. Does that help at all? Yeah, that's really helpful. And one thing that comes to mind and kind of combining some of the things you've already shared is how significant it is to work with someone who you feel safe with. It sounds obvious, but there are so many times where people stay in what are supposed to be healing relationships that aren't the right fit. And people feel disempowered to, to be in the driver's seat that this is for you. You're often the one paying for it in many different ways. So I, I love to remind people to shop around, to ask questions, to look for recommendations, and that it's so worth it to wait for that right person and not to, not to give, up, give up because everyone has seen someone who hasn't been the right fit and it can take time. It certainly does take time. But there was, there's one part of the types of healing modalities that you were talking about where in my own experience, they asked me to like, identify a safe space and literally the only thing that came to mind at that point in my healing was their office. So had I not had a healing relationship to even imagine in my mind for this exercise, like I, I'm just using that as an example of is, our therapeutic relationships, whether or not it's a meditation teacher or a therapist or all the different types of modalities that you named, what's key is finding the right person who, who you feel like you can build a therapeutic alliance with. Yeah, and I think that that's really key. And also, like I said, someone who's properly trained in trauma, you know, not just in mindfulness in general, um, because there are resourcing, you know, issues and, and, and sort of, you know, uh, going off the cliff, they call it, and somatic experiencing issues that you can run into. Not that you, you know, can't come back from that. But um, in terms of resourcing, you mentioned the only safe space in your experience was uh, at that time in the therapist's office. What I invite my clients to do sometimes when I'm teaching mindfulness is to not only imagine a safe space or a safe person, but it could be anyone from a superhero figure that they might think have their back, like a Shrek or a Wonder Woman or an Aquaman or whatever. It could be a religious deity, somebody with whom they feel like there's resonance or solace, Mother Mary, Jesus, uh, Buddha. It could be a historical figure, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, um, you know, Winnie Mandela. It could be somebody who you feel like you're connected to somehow. And it could be ancestrally, somebody from your own history or family that isn't in your immediate circle, but you've heard stories about, or when you look at the picture of your great aunt or your great grandmother, it warms your heart or reminds you that you have strong blood in you somehow and that you are part of this survivor legacy of people who have undoubtedly come through um, some, you know, traumas of their own in the past, but that the genes live on. And that that can also be part of it. It could be a pet. It could be um, also a visualization of a place that maybe you've gone to that have, um, that has been ephemeral, meaning it didn't last, but, you know, you, you went there once, might have been a beach, or it might have been the, you know, the, 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 the woods or something like that when you were with a, a team of kids from camp or something like that. But part of this is the positive neuroplasticity aspect of recalling what is good and what is present and remembering 
how to begin to bring more of that into our lives and how to recognize and not just zone out about the stuff that we normally just take for granted and bypass and that doesn't come to mind. Um, I was teaching uh, recently mindfulness and the person also like you didn't have a safe person that she could identify as somebody who was a cheerleader, somebody who was a support, somebody who she could imagine uh, was going to be uh, the person who was gonna have her back. So I invited a space, like a physical space, and, you know, one person came up with a tree once and they just had this tree that they really felt connected to. And so, you know, we're sort of stretching and pushing the envelope a little bit, but what we're trying to train the body to do is recognize the sense of um, arousal, this calm state that it has when you open up to your body being resonant with that experience of being with the tree or being in the woods or at the beach or with the pet or with the deity or what it would like to do that. So we're trying to just expand the options a little bit also. I love how strength-based it is. And you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about memory and that's a whole long conversation, but it's amazing to me how much the tra trauma treatment has changed. Whereas in the past, imagining people sitting there in an office recalling any and all traumatic memories and now where we are today where we're in a lot of different types of therapy focused on what's healing what feels safe and building like you're saying on internal resources I feel like it it makes so much sense and even just in how like how powerful our thoughts are how powerful our conversations are how powerful like what we surround ourselves with every single moment of every day matters in terms of our wiring and our patterns of relating to the world so I love it just seems it seems very logical that spending time connecting with any kind of experience, like you said, or people or figure that, that connects us to feelings of, of warmth and goodness and safety is healing. Yeah, and it's and also, yeah, and I was going to say in the positive neuroplasticity aspect, the more that we call to mind anything that is, that the more that we can begin to sort of rewire our, you know, neural networks to a place where we automatically default more toward that, right? Because the default mode network based on, you know, all the research and the fMRIs and whatever is, you know, a mind wandering network. We just sort of, our thoughts go wherever they are, but that which, you know, we turn our attention to is where neural firing goes, where, where attention goes, neural firing, you know, flows. Like you will, be able to intentionally direct your attention to more positive experiences. And without being Pollyanna and glossing things over, those opportunities will grow new neural networks where you begin to see and be able to receive more positive experiences in your own life. So it's kind of a two-way street. It's kind of interesting. And as far as memory reconsolidation and, and, and these other modalities that basically use uh, some form of working with um, bilateral simulation with the uh, limbic system and the emotional brain and the emotional memory. In my experience and my research and the work that I've been doing in terms of um, what I've studied, whether it's formally called memory reconsolidation, tapping, EMDR, somatic experiencing, whatever, they're all the different things. Usually what you're doing is you're resourcing in a very sort of way that I just described, calling up a good thing, a good relationship, a good space, a good, a safe, whatever it is that's safe. And maybe you don't want to use the word space, maybe safe. Maybe you want to use the word peaceful. Maybe you want to use the word calming. Maybe you want to use a different word, but some, some place where you don't feel like you're reactive and on alert. <clears throat> and then you're titrating into the piece that's challenging. 
you're not diving overboard into it, into the quicksand. So you do go there, but you don't go there and keep repeating it and talking about it with sheer exposure therapy in the way that people sometimes don't heal from. So you're resourcing first with something good, which often is grounded in a therapeutic relationship. But then you're titrating and dipping your toe into the water little by little with this other challenging experience. And the mind goes to the corrective experience once you start reimagining what this challenging experience could be. What is it that you would have liked to have done? Who, would it, who is it that you would have liked to have helped you? What is it that they would have said to you that would have been helpful? Who would they have warded off? How would they have done it? Where would you have gone if you were not there? How would you have escaped? What would you have done to leave? And so you're opening up this movie that you're writing, watching yourself on the screen of this, and helping your own system complete its response to something that it wasn't able to do at the time. So we don't lose our access to the explicit memory of the unfortunate events or events that did happen, but you're introducing to your own mind and body the possibility of a different outcome. You know, there was a series of books when I was a kid called Choose Your Own Adventure, and you could pick different endings. And it's kind of like that. You're rewriting your own story. And so when you do that with all of these parameters and all these caveats with a trained professional, with somebody who knows what they're doing, it can automatically over time in terms of your own system be that you gravitate toward that corrective experience. And then although the trauma is not, you don't forget, it's different in your body. You relate to it differently. You're able to have more of that witnessing awareness around it without always identifying so much with it that you're down in the rabbit hole and into the quicksand of it so that you can move on with life and go from surviving to thriving. Yeah, everything you just said is, is exactly why it's so important to find someone who, like you said, has a, a trauma-informed background and, and more than just the standard training. I, I've told many of my classmates this past year and friends of mine that I was once in a therapeutic relationship where it was really hard for that practitioner to refer me to someone who had an expertise in trauma for so many reasons. So really finding someone who has the, the training that you need, because it's not, there's complex trauma is very different than other types of trauma. So yeah, the work that you're describing really resonates with where, where I've gone in my work and my studies. And I also really love the reminder that it's not about going on like a three month meditation retreat, that it's really important for people who've been through trauma to start with something smaller and so much of the research supports that even just a few minutes of mindfulness meditation a day is incredibly powerful. So I wish someone had told me that back in college when I was first learning. Gosh, I remember being like, I'm sitting for 30 minutes in the morning and I'm falling asleep, sitting trying to sit for 30 minutes in the evening and I'm falling asleep. And now looking back, it's, it's funny, like if, if I hadn't been trying so hard, which, you know, you shouldn't have to like be like feeling bad about your meditation practice that kind of defeats the purpose of practicing. So anyways, if, if there was something that, that you wish someone had told you looking back about healing, um, what's something that would be useful to share? That it's possible. That you can totally like 
have a different life and way of dealing with your life. Um, that it's not what you think it is, you know? It's not what you think it is, I don't think. It's, um, it's a different way of being in the world. I, to me, all this business of enlightenment and awakening and healing from trauma and all of this stuff, I mean, you can make it all sound blissful and, you know, luminous light and whatever, or you can just say, wow, I can walk about the world and have agency, have boundaries, feel like I have my own rights and needs and wants, be able to be responsive and not reactive, be able to not be compulsive about things, be able to actually be with people, knowing how much I can tolerate, how much I can't. I mean, what more do you want out of life? I mean, yes, then you can plan, then you can sit and you can do these other big projects, then you can um, map out a life, then you can go out on dates and try to meet somebody who might be a a decent partner, but because you're boundaried and you have agency, you're not going to settle for somebody who's not treating you well because you won't look at how they are on paper. You'll look at how they treat you. And, you know, all of that is, um, I mean, it, 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 it's more banal than people expect, and yet it's profound in ways that are, you know, sort of mind-blowing and life-altering because once you heal yourself you could show up for people differently i can't tell you how many therapists i've gone to that they themselves have been very dysregulated and it's you know obvious now that you know they didn't have an ability to really be as helpful um, in their healing they might have been intelligent or they might have been well-intentioned or well-meaning but they really weren't because they hadn't gone into their own basement and their own psyche into their own you know, issues. And a lot of meditation teachers are like this too. They just sit there and they zen out and they zone out and they kind of, um, you know, think that it's the answer to everything. I don't think that's the case. I think you have to do both. I think practice and mindfulness techniques are a beautiful complement to if you've been through trauma, especially complex trauma, developmental trauma, shock trauma, incident trauma, anything, any of that stuff. You got to work through it in a way that is not going to just happen if you're sitting on a cushion um, wishing for it to go away. Um, and not even to mention other things like systemic oppression, oppression and racism and sexism and ableism and, you know, all of that other kind of stuff that is very real that shows up that mindfulness alone, if you practice it at an individual level, won't heal unless there's a collective response. Because all of this ultimately frees you up once you've healed your own stuff to see the ways in which we are all the same, to see and feel and be compassionate with. What's compassion? When you're passionate, we all know what that is. Fiery, enthusiastic, energetic, moving forward, right? Compassion is to be that way with, right? You're having the empathy of feeling what the other person feels, but you're not getting stuck there and burnout going down the you know spiral of sinking in to what they're feeling which a lot of therapists unfortunately i think do and then they get burnt out but the compassion is how can i be with you but also be boundaries and have that wise discernment and use what i know for action-oriented solutions or invitations i should say not solutions because it's up to the other person to want to step into the space when you have the offering to then co-resonate. So you're always co-regulating with your environment. But a lot of people feel like, oh, I've healed. I'm okay. Or I'm underwater. I'm not healed. 
So there's this binary aspect of things. What if it's a both and? As I heal, my ability to show up in the world also expands. My ability to be there for others and my ability to receive the generosity of others also expands, which a lot of people who are trauma survivors don't do because we're like a little sea anemone that closes when you know, there's a toxin in the water. You know, we don't know how to open back up to receive the nourishment. Yeah, all, all of that. And like you said at the beginning, healing is possible. And that's a reason why I, I bring people on the show to talk about their own healing and, and to be living examples of stuff you're doing in the world right now as a result of your commitment to your healing. And I'm so grateful for what you've, what you've discovered and what you're teaching others now. Um, I'm curious with the Me Too movement, which of course, none of that is new in the world. It's just more visible and there's more awareness around it. I'm thinking about access to, to healing and the different kind of communal lenses that you bring around access and equity. Like there's so much difficulty. There are so many barriers to accessing mental health care. And then you add all these incredible modalities that are newer and maybe insurance covers them less frequently. I'm just talking off the top of my head, but do you have any comments or recommendations for people who are like, yes, I want all of that now? Of course, you can't have it all at once, and it's a longer-term journey and, and work to do, not to just check off like three months of therapy, whatever type it is. But unfortunately, the mental health care world we live in is often limited to a certain number of sessions. So what do you have any comments on that in the face of like so many more people coming in for I'm ready to do this work? Yeah, I mean, um, it's a beautiful question and one rooted in reality because again, classism, right? Like a lot of these folks are private, you know, and you can't access them for less than 250 an hour in New York, you know? So, um, well, first of all, I would say check out the modalities I mentioned like EMDR and um, uh, tapping or EFT, emotionally focused therapy, uh, sensory motor psychotherapy, somatic experiencing, brain spotting, um, the other one. Hakomi, I think also. Um, check out all those kinds of modalities and see whether or not your um, insurance, when you cross-check on psychology today or goodtherapy.org, uh, you know, check and see if any of the folks that are in your insurance plan offer uh, internal family systems or any of those other kinds of modalities that deal directly with trauma. That's number one. And if they do, try to go see that person right? As opposed to just somebody else, even if they're across town, even if they're a little bit further away. And if they're not available, see if they do video therapy. Sometimes that is um, just as effective uh, in, in certain circumstances. I always advocate for in-person visits, but sometimes having the right person in terms of their training is more important than necessarily being in the room with them because there's a lot of connection that you can still have through this new technology that I think is surprising to a lot of people. But having been a newscaster for so many years, I know that in fact it's palpable because people do feel connected even if it's through a screen oftentimes. The other thing is, is um, get educated. So I do a big, big component of psychoeducation with um, any of my mindfulness clients, and I teach them a lot about how um, not only do the uh, mindfulness teachings work, but uh, how neuroscience and attachment theory work, how uh, their somatic nervous system regulation, their limbic system, their brainstem, their uh, prefrontal cortex, all all of those are interrelated. So when people see it all mapped out, it's not like, oh, there's something wrong with me. They can see, okay, these are the things I'm working on. And so they can kind of even enter therapy with more of a, 
I'm a co-conspirator here with the therapist. The therapist doesn't have all the answers. You have all the answers within you, and a good therapist is going to help you access them by serving as a good guide, right? It's a very different way of thinking about it, as opposed to like psychoanalysis back in the day with Freud, where, you know, I don't know what they were doing back then anyway, but you know, so um, that, that would be a second thing is get educated. So go to the library. You can, you know, research some of these modalities. You can talk uh, to a few different therapists. You can also look for groups. There are sometimes groups that you can do um, that are either online. Sometimes the folks at Psychology Today will have groups. Sometimes they're a little cheaper. They're a little bit more ongoing. Um, they can be about things like dating or about um, things like uh, attachment or trauma or any number of issues. Um, and there are also oftentimes community groups. And I'm not in a 12-step program, although I have been to them in the past, but again, those are free and they can be supportive in ways, although I wouldn't necessarily um, go along with that whole uh, line of language if it doesn't resonate with you because it's based in a Christian tradition and somewhat hierarchical and you know I'm not thinking that it's a big panacea but if you look at it through the lens of this is community support and kind of as they say in AA take what you want and leave the rest see if that perhaps can't be um, helpful and see if there aren't any other programs like the YMCA or you know yoga oriented uh, programs things like that that you can go for five dollars a class or something that are a little bit more accessible that are more ongoing because I think those help a lot more um, too in the long run than just um, than just therapy but you know I think it's important reminders and healing happens in relationship or trauma happens in relationships often and so does healing so it's not going to be just one, one person and so that just reminds me of, of one last question i wanted to ask you for any friends or family of loved ones who are on their healing path who might listen to this like what what can they do often people want the help and they don't know where to begin even though i think it's often that mere question of how can i help that i would find most valuable as a person doing the healing work what would you say well, I think the how can I help question is a beautiful help, a beautiful question because it doesn't assume that the person knows and it doesn't assume that the person needs to know, right? So you're giving the mm, survivor space to be able to um, let you know when they're ready to um, invite you in to help, you know? Um, a lot of times people offer advice that isn't really helpful, um, even though they're well-intentioned. So the one thing I think people might want to do is get a real handle on what some of the statistics around childhood sexual abuse and incest are, because it's um, a lot more people who've experienced this than um, people even know about. And the likelihood of it happening in one's own family and one's own circle of friends is actually really high. And people aren't really wanting to kind of know that. And it happens in systems also, like we just saw in, um, awful, awful, awful uh, explanation of what's happened in the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania, um, which, you know, it's a 20-year saga. They continue to chip away uh, at what's been going on there, and it was just happened in a Buddhist community, the Shambhala community, where the leader was um, also um, accused of inappropriate relationships with his students. So I would, I would let people know that, like, trauma's the norm, and in terms of sexual 
um, inappropriate relations. That's often also the norm, but because people like kind of want to put the blinders on like a horse, you know, you just sort of go forward like, um, and it happens to boys also. Um, like wake up to sort of making space in your mind and heart for the fact that this is something that happens. And so anytime that, you know, I'm suspicious of this or somebody comes to me with this, let me get educated as opposed to say, oh no, this couldn't happen because this person has never been that way with me or they're such an upstanding citizen in other ways or they represent the company or the family or the whatever so well. None of that has any bearing when it comes to these more sort of quiet, private, insidious things. You have to be able to expand your view and hold both that somebody can be one thing in certain settings or in certain relationships and also be another thing in others. And respect the fact that healing's possible, but kids really don't have the vocabulary, don't have the, um, they're dependent necessarily on their caregivers. And so they're locked in to families and situations that they otherwise can't get out of in order to survive. And so really, um, I would say make space in your head and heart for that. Do some basic statistics, especially around childhood sexual abuse and incest, which I have here. I can share with people if you want. Um, and kind of know that a lot of this stuff that's the Me Too stuff often comes out of that because once people have been traumatized around those kinds of issues, especially around attachment and developmental trauma, it sets up a system where the boundaries are not there in the same way that they otherwise would be. And so therefore the decisions that are made later in life are not as, um, they're not as um, clear as they would be uh, if one hadn't experienced that kind of trauma. And so they're more subject to repeated abuse and trauma later on. And so- That's the like study too, with sort of the long-term health consequences too. It's not just, yes, kids are resilient and they do heal oftentimes quicker than adults. And there's major lifetime consequences that the world needs to wake up to because- Obesity, of all those women, you know, like 40% at least have been sexually abused as reported by the Vince Felitti study. 17,000 people, I think, for the Kaiser Permanente study there. Um, and then an ACE score of six or higher out of 10 uh, has like a 4,000 times as high a rate for heroin use. Uh, as it would be uh, for IV drug use, whatever people are shooting. Um, so, and, and what, is, what are those scores about? About whether or not you have an abusive, you know, family member, you know, either physically or, or sexually, whether or not your parents are divorced, whether or not you um, ever felt safe or had somebody you could talk, like there's a whole thing. So um, yes, the ACE study is important to notice. Well, I, I know we have to be finished for today, Francesca, but I can't thank you enough. It's such a pleasure to learn with you and from you, and thank you for being a guest. There's so much more to talk about related to your work, so I'll have some of it in the show notes, and you can reach Francesca at mindfulbrooklyn at gmail.com. And thanks to all listening for tuning in and joining us. You can also visit rachelgrantcoaching.com to learn more about her coaching work and resources we have on the site. And please subscribe to this podcast. We have so much more to share. Thanks, everyone. Have 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.